this is Jess Van Ostrand from The Project Room. Musician and visual artist Paul Rucker began making work in 2009 that responded to the history of slavery and its relationship to current American issues about race and equality. This initial effort developed into a large and ongoing body of work, Recapitulation, that The Project Room is following throughout 2014. I recently sat down with Paul to see how his progress was coming along and what he's learned so far in this ambitious and large-scale body of work. Thanks for listening. Um, we were, we've been talking about this idea of transformation at the project room. It's one of the current topics. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about you, Paul, and your work and the way that you work as a creative person um, within this question of transformation. And something interesting came up when we were talking recently about um, projects that change in the middle, change in their process. And I wanted to talk to you about that because I think it's actually a lot more common than people realize that projects sometimes take a radical change in direction and develop, and develop in all kinds of unexpected ways. And I was just wondering how, tell us about that and how you experience that and, and maybe give us an example based on what you're working on now. I think so much of uh, art, music, people go to the final concert or they go to the final opening. So the process of creating the piece is out of mind and out of sight. So you don't know if the person uh, took two hours to create the piece or two years unless they tell you. And I think if you go into making a project or creating an idea and you have rigid expectations of how you want it to be, you're going to miss a lot of opportunity. Sometimes things turn out differently and not not better or worse, but just different. And sometimes the process of figuring out, you know, what you're doing will lead the creative ideas. I mean, I think you, you can really miss beauty. I think Brian Eno, he goes into the studio and he actually embraces when things turn out uh, unexpected. And I think that's a trait that's really wonderful for creatives. If you embrace things when they turn out uh, differently and then looking at the qualities of those things and how they turn out and finding something positive about it, finding something that you may not like it, uh, about it. But I think some of the most beautiful things are created organically, not really being controlled by mm -hmm. an entity. It's like, it's like a conductor conducting an orchestra. A really good conductor knows how to stay out of the way because music is going to happen most of the time whether the conductor is standing in front of it or not. Hmm. So in your current project, Recapitulation, you have what you're calling an empathy project, mm -hmm. where for part of it you're actually soliciting stories of empathy from people. Mm -hmm. And you have clearly an interest in participation from other people other than just you know what's coming from your own mind and your own research. And it actually is part of your research. Mm -hmm. so, it seems, so how does that relate then? How does gathering other people's stories when you don't know what you're gonna get, how does that impact the work that you make? Well, well as a musician, would we you play a concert and there's an audience and you can feel that energy as a visual artist you put up a show and then you walk away uh, the last two shows i've been in in the past few months one was in one was at arizona state university another one's up right now in pennsylvania I, i'm not attending either one of the shows and so i'm not going to have any kind of connection to the audience or the people that go visu visualize and see the art so this, the Empathy Project that's taking place at MICA is inviting the people in the community, the staff and faculty to submit work and to create stories about the work. And there's a table, just like the one in the project room, there's a long table 
where people are going to be able to come and meet and talk about different aspects of empathy, you know, and their first experiences with empathy or significant experience, significant experiences with empathy. And the main reason for the empathy project is I realized if I'm going to start talking about not just slavery, prison system, uh, women's issues, uh, accessibility for someone who's disabled, we need to develop empathy as a skill in putting ourselves in other people's positions. Mm -hmm. yeah. So is it important then that the empathy research happens early on in your in the, in making this work that uh -oh. you're sort of first you kind of need to start with empathy in order to move forward oh no I, I don't really have the philosophy I need to do this before I do this mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the biggest biggest excuses that you can have as a uh, young artist or musician and really to to address social change and we need to uh, approach it from all fronts whether it be as an artist, as an educator, uh, I'm on the advisory board to the uh, Baltimore School District. I just joined after I arrived uh, in Baltimore because I'd like to create curriculum um, to, to teach empathy as a skill, you know, n no different than critical thinking, which is this new thing now, uh, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to take on. And so when, when you're talking about social change, um, talk a little bit about what your particular interests are and and where you're putting that energy and that focus well right now correcting history you know as as far as how it's told or how far uh, how far is not told and it's really a shame that we don't know our you know the constitution really well or our amendments and same with the emancipation proclamation you know it was 1863 january 1st and many people think that that ended slavery but there are so many things after slavery uh, supposedly ended that kept slavery in place, such as the prison system, such as peonage, where uh, people were picked up for minor offenses, uh, such as walking along the railroad tracks while black, you know, and they were incarcerated, usually around the time it was harvesting time for the crops. And those prisoners were leased out to farms to pick cotton, because cotton was a huge industry. So knowing the impact of slavery knowing the impact of women's rights, you know, and what the suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susie B. Anthony, and the other women did at the time, are, if we don't have knowledge about the history, we will lose uh, those rights. We've already lost uh, the, the Fourth Amendment. I mean, the right to search and seizures, basically, you know, we, we can be searched at any time after the Patriot Act, and we've given that up. And we might as well just take it out. We just might as well strike it out. So tell me then about how, as an artist and mm -hmm. a creative mind, mm -hmm. how you then apply what you're talking about actually into arts making. Like, mm -hmm. what does that look like to you when you're thinking about these things you want to tackle mm -hmm. and that your way of, of handling them is through making art? So what is that like then? Well, I created uh, Proliferation, the piece I did at Cornish when you were working there as curator, and um, that showed, it was a data visualization piece before I even knew what data visualization was, mm -hmm. uh, and it showed the proliferation of the U.S. prison system, and I just uh, completed another piece that shows the slave density map from 1860. And those had music as part of them, yeah. which I feel like is important to say, because mm -hmm. I thought when you experienced that piece, that the music was really woven into the visual element very tightly. It, that's a really good 
thing to point out. I, I, I didn't want the music to be too leading, mm -hmm. in a sense, because music can be used to make people feel certain ways. I mean, you can tell when you're looking at a scary movie when, I mean, as a musician and composer who's done music or film, I can tell when someone's about to die because, oh boy, this is, this is about to die sound. Or this is a, <laughs> or this is someone sneaking up behind you sound. I mean, they, they, see, I didn't want to play with people's emotions because I think music is very powerful. And the slave density map right now doesn't have any sound at all, and it's basically just showing, you know, it's it's work in progress. It may have music later. It may not. Again, going back to our earlier mm -hmm. um, conversation, I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't like to make rigid plans about, you know, the piece until it's done. And even after it's done, I may change it later. I could change it. 10 years later, or I could take two failed projects and combine those to create a new piece, you know, 15 years from now. I think that's the thing, because I think it's good to revisit old ideas. Mm. But, but the way I'm doing it is showing in an individual way. If I start talking about um, the average juvenile, juvenile offender, you know, it costs $200,000 a year. Uh, average jail incarceration cost for someone in the city of New York is $160,000 a year. Guantanamo Bay is $2.7 million per prisoner per year. People, I mean, most people have already glazed over by then. But if I do a visual representation of how much these things cost, people can understand it. This is when you can get kids that are really young can look at proliferation and see that there are a lot of lights up there, which translate to a lot of prisons, which means it's significant. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you, you started out your career as a musician, as a cellist, did your change into including visual art in your work correspond with your interest in these issues, or how how did that happen? I, I started out actually as a bass player, uh, and I played with symphonies and orchestras in the southeast. I played with the South Carolina Philharmonic starting when I was 18. I started playing musical theater when I was 12. It was my first job. I was paid $10 a night. Like you were in the pit orchestra? I was in, I was in the pit orchestra, and Man of La Mancha was my first show, and I played that in The Music Man, uh, Seven by Brides for Seven Brothers. I mean, I, I really enjoy musical theater. And, you know, I was I was a young kid making $10 a night. I was a rich man, you know. <laughs> so How old were you around this time? 13, 12, oh. 13. There was a, there's always a shortage of bass players then, and I was really lucky because mm. I could always get work. Even if you were the worst bass player, you could find work. <laughs> and so I, I got a lot of opportunity when I was younger, and I started playing in the local orchestra when I was uh, 13 or 14. And, and one of the best ways to get better is to play with people that are better than you. I mean, it's one of the best ways. So I was always open to playing with people that were better. And uh, I had some great mentors that were never officially mentors, but they were there, and they would help me with things. And and I later went, attended college and on a full scholarship. I never took a private lesson. And you never took a private lesson. Um, never took. I, t I studied. I learned in public school. And wow. usually, the kids that outside that took private lessons were the ones that excelled. I had friends that took private lessons. And is a huge advantage. I mean, but luckily public school uh, lessons and classes were really good when I was there. If I were, if I was in school now, it wouldn't be the same. Arts have really gone downhill uh, across the country. Unless you're in a private school, then you have access to really good quality. Or if you're in one of the standout schools, you know, like here in Seattle, if you go to Roosevelt, Garfield, you know, where they go to the Essential Ellington Festival, I mean, People move across town to, to be part of these groups. 
but not everyone has this access. So I, I grew up, I went, I attended the high school across town because they had the better orchestra program and it was predominantly white high school. They had white, white high schools had the most money and they had the best instruments and they had the biggest band, the biggest orchestra, but you know, it wasn't as diverse. And I, I lived right near another high school, which was like a vocational school. And then the black high school was actually closer than the high school that I attended. So, but I wanted to go to this other high school to be in that band, to be in that orchestra. And I started playing in the high school band uh, when I was in middle school. I played in the jazz band. And also was in the marching band when I was 13 for the high school. I was I was pushing the cart. There was an electric bass in the marching band, so. This, uh, How yeah. does that work? They, they use a converter and a battery, and you push the cart around. There's electric bass, and that was I played electric bass for four years, and I pushed the cart for one year. So I was I was in the band for, you know, all those years. Wow, what didn't you do? I mean, you it sounds like you were in everything. I was in band. So clearly, or, I mean, without uh, the resources of having private lessons, you must have just did you have kind of a work ethic that made up for not having private lessons? When a kid is empowered, I, I was, no one ever told me to practice. I loved it, I loved doing it. I was in band, orchestra, chorus. I sang in a barbershop quartet um, because I loved doing it, you know? It, it, it was my community and um, yeah. And I, and I started playing cello um, later when I was about 30 and uh, and I just picked it up and that's what I primarily play now, but I've never taken a lesson to play cello, but that's why I have my own style of playing, which I use a lot of extended technique. And um, What's and, extended technique? Well, it's just playing different parts of the body, uh, slapping the body, using it as a drum. I'll sing into the cello and, and loop these sounds. I'll use a, uh, this pedal called Line 6 and I'll play loops in layer, so it'll sound like there's several cellos playing at one time. You can add like a rhythm track, a bass line, you can just, and then play a melody on top of, uh, you can accompany yourself basically. So. Most of the time I've seen you perform on the cello, it's been improvisation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in how that's different from the visual art that you make, because if you're making a, a sculpture or some kind of visual piece, you have to stop, at least the kind of visual art you make, it. Mm -hmm. it you stop making it, you consider it finished, and you put it in a gallery, for example. Mm -hmm. That seems very different from being on stage in the moment, being able to change direction and make decisions mm -hmm. about what's coming out of your instrument. Mm -hmm. Do you use like two different parts of your brain for that? Well, with visual art, I'm improvising during the process of making it, and that mm -hmm. happens in the studio. With music, I'm improvising in front of people on stage. So they're both, they both have the same processes in different places. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the interacting and playing with people live is very different because I, I play based on the energy that I'm getting from the crowd. If, if I'm by myself playing, it doesn't sound nearly, it doesn't sound the same. Like in really? Berkeley, in Berkeley there were, yeah, there were 2,000 people in the audience and you can feel when you're getting good energy from someone. You can feel, if you play about 30 seconds, you can feel or even quicker than that, within a few seconds, you can feel if there you're connecting, because there's nonverbal communication. There's more nonverbal communication than verbal communication that happens on a daily basis, and there's something we can't measure with any kind of meter. I mean, we can measure sound, we can measure temperature, you know, we can measure humidity, but we can't measure the energy between the people on stage 
and the audience. If we were able to figure out ways of like measuring that, then we'd probably try to figure out a way of controlling that. And thankfully, we can't control that because we'd figure out how to commoditize it in some kind of way. People can try to make more excitement by having a light show or whatever, but you know, people see through that pretty quickly. If it if it's bad, it's bad. And uh, that's that's the other thing I like about music. If people don't like the music, they will walk away. They will not be. They will not listen. I think that's mm -hmm. that's a pretty magical thing, you know. Hmm. With visual art, it's kind of different because you, you'll walk through a museum, you know, well, it's here, so it must be something, it must be good. And you'll question yourself a lot more than, unless you're in a crowd of people, I mean, but I still think the, the, the detector, the, the crap detector is really good for people in music music venues. Did you say the crap detector? The crap detector, you know, where, where it's like, this is really not good. I know I paid $20 to get in here, but this is really not good. I know this guy got great reviews in Pitchfork Magazine and, you know, in Rolling Stone gave them four stars, but I'm not feeling it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I, I think that meter, people have a, their own meter and people get pumped up about people they're excited about. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I, I the, there's certain voices that give me chills. Like when I hear someone and I know that they got it, I'm like, okay, they got it. So I was wondering if um, when if entering into making visual art has changed the way you approach your music. Mm, well, I don't have a degree in visual art. I've never taken a visual art class. I've only taken an Art 110 class, so I took art appreciation. So my approach to making art has been more from a financial, like, what, how, what can I afford to do? What can I recycle? What can I, because um, my first pieces were interactive sound and video pieces, so I wanted to do interactive pieces. And when I started doing these pieces in 2007, interactive technology was, one, really expensive. It's cheaper now, but I would try to find, you know, what will allow me to do this, you know, or what can I use this piece for? I mean, my first interactive piece was an infrared beam piece. It was 11 conversations, and where you could wave your hand and manipulate the audio of a video. But I, I used a hardware piece. Uh, I can't remember the name of the piece, but it was a hardware solution instead of a software solution. And I found a use for it to, to apply, to, to convey the idea, and it worked. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do things around my financial limitations. And like a lot of artists, I mean, as an artist, you, you, you're going to have a project that's, that's going to cost $5,000, and they're going to give you $500 to do it. I mean, you know, so y your biggest aspect of your creativity and how it's going to be challenged is going to be mainly through figuring out how to do this project with limited means mm -hmm. and resources. Well, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but I also don't want you to sell yourself short because I think you have ideas about how to translate your ideas into visual art that really fit the ideas. So there's still a concept that it makes sense. So if you're looking at your sculptures that resemble the bodies of cellos mm -hmm. and you're talking about the murder of a certain person and mm -hmm. suddenly the cello looks like a human body, I mean, there's reasons why you've made the visual choices that you've made. I yeah those pieces in particular I'm 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 in a better financial situation now than I was even three or four years ago so I I could create those pieces and luckily you know a, one of the pieces sold at the art fair so you know I've recouped the money you know and more but that's not the typical scenario a typical scenario is I create something it shows 
and it doesn't sell, it goes into storage, and I've spent, you know, two, three thousand dollars on it or more. So, luckily, you know, the series of pieces that I did in 2007 helped me get a public art commission in 2008. It was like a forty thousand dollar commission. It was great. So, a lot of times you don't know exactly how your work is going to pay off. You just hope that this will lead to something else. Something and else, ideas-wise, or opportunities. Both ideas, mm -hmm. opportunity, something more financially. Uh, so you're investing. I mean, you're investing in your career, basically. You're investing, but it's more like a Vegas investing than uh, than, than than a CD investing. Gambling? Mean, it, are we going to say gambling? You are, you are gambling, but I think you shouldn't do a piece based on it's going to advance your career. You should do the piece because you want to do the piece. Yeah, and well, and you're you're um, really focused on um, educating educating people about what is in America's past mm -hmm. and how that's really important mm -hmm. for the future. How, as an artist, would you like your work to be thought of or to be remembered I don't in want the it future? To be, I don't want it to be remembered. I want it to change things. I mean, I don't, I mean if I just wanted to be remembered, uh, yeah. I think there's plenty of monuments out there that help people, remind people of things. But again, slavery, there's not a single monument that acknowledges the contribution of slavery in the country. There's one in Tribeca that acknowledges, Tribeca in New York, that acknowledges the 15 to 30,000 slaves buried there. Yes, New York had slaves. And I think there's a plaque on the side of the White House that acknowledges the slaves that helped build the White House, but there's nothing that, it, that you know, acknowledges that contribution. And I wanted to be a catalyst for change, for a catalyst for conversation to address things because, um, I mean, we, we manipulate language right now. Right now, the trial that's going on, um, Dunn was accused of saying, I hate thug music, you know, and he's been calling people thugs. You know, right now, thug is the new nigger, you know, and language is really important when things are implied, you know, and you have, why are certain kids thugs? Why is Trayvon Martin a thug? And the thing is, these kids that were killed by Dunn, the one kid that was killed by Dunn was not, he didn't have a, he was a model student. He was a popular guy, had a pretty girlfriend, you know, smart kid, no criminal record. But what happens is they put the, pe the people, the victims on trial. Trayvon Martin was on trial, not George Zimmerman. And right now, the, the proving that, you know, these kids didn't have a gun seems to be the more bigger focus than, you know, the other guy justifying shooting. He says he saw a shotgun, but he leaves the crime scene and drives for hours and goes and has a drink and a pizza with his girlfriend. And orders a pizza. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and he, he never called 911. He never calls 911. And he said he has t had tunnel vision. No, you know, and I'm wondering why didn't the girlfriend call? Why didn't she call? I mean, you don't leave a scene of a crime. If you leave, if you have a hit and run, I mean, you're, you're in trouble. And, uh, but a lot of this has to do with our roots. I mean, there was a hatchet uh, Saturday that happened in Jacksonville where civil rights in 1960, where people were protesting in Jacksonville for civil rights. Well, and then a bunch of white folks with hatchets beat up the protesters. And more than likely, nothing happened to those folks. Just like when Emmett Till was killed, nothing happened to those folks. You know, and uh, 
we have, a, and that's deep rooted in this trial right now. That not so distant past. And if you look at the Duwamish tribe, and you know, and you know, they know where their land is here, and, and they they deserve to have be acknowledged as a tribe for once. They deserve compensation for the land that was taken away or the land back, but it happens to be in an area that's very, you know, it's valuable property. And um, so the motivations behind race relations are are equality or dealing with atrocities of our history in our history has less to do with hatred about another person's race, ethnicity, or gender. It has a lot more to do about green and money. And um, I'm, I'm realizing now that so much of my work is, you know, is, is really about equity and about equal access to opportunity. And I, I think the media can, you know, they can bring up gay marriage, uh, gun violence, uh, Healthcare, all these really comes down to this. All I think all these things are distracting from the real issue of equity, hmm. of an opportunity. Right now, we have a huge disparity in wealth that's gotten bigger since 2008 crash. Uh, the the really rich, rich have gotten a lot richer, and because that money that didn't just disappear, people made a lot of money from. I don't want to get into the whole uh, stock market security swap thing, but the money just didn't disappear. You know, a lot of that bad debt was sold overseas and people made money off that debt. And we had people here, we had one guy in the U.S. that made over $3 billion in one year. How can one guy make $3 billion in one year? And it's, he, he wasn't doing the nicest things, you know. Mm -hmm. But but we admire people, though, and society that, that win through corrupt ways. You know, like Bernie Madoff, you know, he he manipulated over $70 billion, not to say $70,000 million. But he lived for a long time, the high life, great. And now he's in a country club prison living his senior years out. But how many people would trade places to be able to live like him for a couple of decades or live like he did with multiple houses, multiple cars, mm -hmm. and knowing that their final years, he's admired, he won, mm. he won. And the Security Exchange Commission ignored it, even though there were many articles that were written about it. There's a woman that wrote an uh, article, I think it was in New York Magazine, and uh, she said, there's no way this could be working. The Security Exchange Commission investigated, investigated, but you know, mm -hmm. and, but there's no accountability. People lost their money, a lot of celebrities lost their money, a lot of nonprofits suffered, a lot of nonprofits that deal with the issues that I support, you know, the prison, system, you know, systems, you know, and support organizations that help prisoners in uh, post-incarceration, that he hurt a lot of people with this whole incident. And so, and you, and speaking of, of prison, I know that you've shared your work mm -hmm. in different prisons, and, yeah. and um, talk about the motivation behind that and what your goals are when you do that kind of work. Well, I think it's really... What do you do, first of all? Like, just tell us what it is when you're doing that. I'll go to a prison, I'll do a performance, I'll play cello, and I've, I've shown proliferation, and I've talked about the prison system and how broken it is inside the prison, I, and I really thank the people who've allowed me to go in and talk about their system, and, you know, and people know that the system's broken. When you have 90% of cases being pleaded, when it's like, well, you know, we don't have, a, we have enough evidence on you, and if you plead innocent, you could get 10 years if you lose. But if you plead guilty, we'll give you five years. 
and this is the typical scenario for a lot of cases. So we have a lot of innocent people in prison who pleaded because they were afraid of getting the longer sentence. So I go in and interact with the prisoners in the system. I think one of the most arrogant things that we do we can do as humans is to go to a different society or different community and, and go in and say, this is how I'm going to help you without talking to them. And this happens all the time. Because you're not smart enough to manage your own problems, obviously. We're smarter than you. So there needs to be an inclusive process in every aspect of my artwork. And I, I, if I'm going to be making work about this issue, I need to talk to people that are being affected by this issue. What, is, what does that look like to you? Well, we have misconceptions. I start working on prison issues because I had friends and kids that I went to school with that, you know, went to prison. One died in prison. One was executed in prison, lethal injection. And several, of them were, several of them were involved in a drug-related murder. So you think about why are they there, not me. So I started working on this issue long before I actually went into a prison. So I had misconceptions about prisons. You know, if I have misconceptions about prisons, and we're a person who's really looking at it and reading about it, you have to go in to really see. Mm -hmm. And uh, recently, I was last year, I was at San Quentin. They have they have a writing program that's been there for over 30 years. They have a music program that's been there for decades. A lot of prominent musicians, uh, Henry Cowell, to a lot of uh, great jazz musicians, spent a lot of time at San Quentin. So if we interact and engage with different communities that we're looking to learn more about, we, we have to, else we're going to have, you know, we're going to make a lot of assumptions. Are we going to have television shows like Orange is the New Black or whatever show dictating on what prison life is about? Or, or I'm living in Baltimore now and people shouldn't look at The Wire as Baltimore. The Wire is more about, you know, amplified America. It could have been any city USA, but, but Baltimore was a great set for mm -hmm. that story. And um, you asked earlier about transitioning from music and uh, doing visual art and social justice. One of the first pieces that I wrote was this piece, uh, Waltz for Michelle. It was about this girl who was killed at a amusement park in North Carolina because these guys were shooting a modified machine gun a couple of miles away and these bullets went really far and it struck her and killed her in a wading pool. <laughs> And uh, you, you can't find this online so easily, but it's online. This is, there's a scan uh, picture of the uh, article. I mean, now you can find anything online, but this was my first piece. And my, uh, I wrote it for my middle school orchestra. I taught middle school for a year as a long-term substitute. And uh, the kids played it. And it was, it was fun uh, to have that piece played, but I've been before I was doing visual art, I was making work about social justice issues. And it, my first piece was about gun violence or gun, that use of gun. And um, yeah, I mean, this is a time period where, you know, there weren't nearly as many guns as there are now. Hmm. But, I, but, I, but the piece wasn't focusing on the gun as much as, as it was focusing on this 16-year-old girl who just had her life taken away. You know, she was in a waiting pool with a boyfriend on a beautiful summer day, and boom, she's dead. And um, so, yeah. So we're talking a lot about change, but we're, and we're also talking about a change in perception, mm -hmm. that even you have had sort of a transformation in the way that you've perceived certain communities or certain groups. Oh, gosh. We're, we're all, uh, uh, I was in a lobby in um, 
San Francisco. I just finished playing a concert at Yerba Buena Center, and I was sitting next to my cello. And a white guy walks down the steps, and he looks at my cello, and he looks kind of excited. Then he runs across the room to this Asian kid and says, is that your cello over there? Wow. So, so he, he had this idea, you know, in his head that what a cello player should look like. And it was this Asian kid that, you know. Even though the cello was closer to you. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's it's like, you know, it hasn't been that long that someone, you know, someone could call your uh, your household your, your, and you, you answer, Jess, and they'll say, can I speak to the head of the household? I mean, it probably hasn't been that long since that happened. Mm-hmm. We had landlines or, or you go to store or bank. I mean, it hasn't been that long since we've. You you go to the bank. The branch manager was a man. The teller were women. You go to schools. The principal was a man. The teachers were women. You go to medical facility. The doctors were men. The nurses were women. You fly a plane. The pilots were men. The stewardesses were women. I mean, I mean, I can go on and on with this, and because we have perpetuated a lot of these things with opening and limiting access to certain people. It's like there are very few women firemen. I mean, that's changing now. But 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 there's a lot that we grew up with when we saw an image of a fireman. It was never a woman. Right, so ever. the perception takes a long time to change, even mm-hmm. if the rules... Yeah. Even if the rules are changed to allow for new things to happen, the yeah. perceptions take much longer to change, maybe. Yeah, and then there's a bad side of that, too, because you can... Um, I've been the poster child for a lot of things because they want to try to show diversity, and I was like saying... And I've actually told people, no, you can't use my picture because I am the only one. This group pit photo is not going to show the true diversity. I mean, if if you know if the, if African-Americans make up 8% of this population... We shouldn't really represent 50% of this picture showing. You know, it's, it's really a false of representation brochures. of the brochures <laughs> or whatever. I mean, I, I, and I, I think when there's been, you know, there's certain times where being diverse is cool, the showing diversity is cool, but you got to actually walk the walk instead of just showing. And if you're motivated by funds, if you're motivated by, you know, after after you just finish this lawsuit that shows that you know your 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 establishment is being racially insensitive, and you're trying to prove that you're not, don't put as much energy into proving that you're not than you are in actually fixing the problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and addressing the problem is really difficult. As uh, I was recently listening to an interview about. Uh, the Tiger Mama, the woman, woman that wrote the book about Tiger Mama, the two Yale professors, there's a couple, they have a new book out talking about traits of successful, you know, folks talked about. Cultural groups that are yeah successful by trait. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, the book talks about the traits, and they talked about, you know, Nigerian immigrants, talked about Mormons as a group. They talked about, you know, immigrant groups. They talked about people, but they didn't mention African American. And... I was waiting for the, during the whole interview. It's not in the book at all. Is that true? I didn't. I know. didn't know if it's not in the book at all. But during this interview, they didn't say anything uh, about see, it at yeah. all. But you can talk about people's traits and what makes them successful. But if you leave out the other obstacles that certain groups are facing that other groups are not, if you don't, if you leave out the selective enforcement of laws and the disparity in prosecution, and the low expectations and the racism that people have towards towards a certain group. It really skews your research. Um, so the project room is following the development of recapitulation, which 
maybe it's a year, maybe it's longer, we don't even know. And that's one of the really um, fun parts about mm -hmm. <laughs> about the, the work that I like to do is to, is to just see where projects go and to follow where your thinking is. Do you have a sort of finish line that your sites are set on for recapitulation? Do you see it? How does it look when it's finished to you? Is there such a thing as this project being finished? Yes, there's multiple phases of this project, and it's, I'm probably going to be working on this for the next definitely three to five years, and probably longer. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's too big. I started discovering I was the original part of recapitulation is re comparing or paralleling slavery with the prison system. And it's like it's recapitulation's uh, music form, musical term kind of like a old theme brought back in a different way. It's, it's, it's like it's a, in a sonata form where you reintroduce the early theme. Well, there were so many parallels to recapitulation of, uh, and not just to prison and slavery, but with lynchings of the past to lynchings of the future, or, or the present with shootings, like the ones that, that are on trial now from vigilantes or police shootings that happen all across the country and from Oscar Grant and Oakland to you know John T. Williams here in Seattle to Amadou Diallo and Sean Bell in New York and Queens so or Trayvon Martin I mean we have a lot of parallels and there there are many many parallels of the economic engine of both of these things I mean if you look at the 220 billion dollars from the state and federal level that goes to housing people incarcerating these are dollars that you know would have been made probably in the old uh, slavery system from the plantation. So you can parallel in so many different ways from um, the different systems. And um, I mean, it, it could go on and on. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm creating a tree right now with all the parallels. But um, yeah, there's no, I don't, I don't want to think about an ending. Because um, mm -hmm. I think it, it would be, it would be limiting to, to yourself. I, th I think if you were to have a financial goal in a business, that's a really good idea because you need to make sure that your costs are covered. But I think as an artist, the only thing that really serves us are deadlines for shows. I'll, I'll have I'll show part of it at a show probably next year. I have a couple of museum shows coming up in various parts of the country that I'm working on, but they'll be just different phases of the project. Since you're showing your work kind of all over the U.S., mm -hmm. I was just curious if you have, if you would have any interest in showing it outside of the U.S. and what your expectations might be for the audience. Well, while prisons are not a uniquely U.S. problem, we we are number one. Uh, the U.S. only makes up five percent of the world population, but we have twenty-five percent of the world's prison population. So, and people are aware wow. of that. Wow, yeah. those are big numbers. Yeah. As we're wrapping up here, what is, what's the next thing for you? This is such a big project with so many arms mm -hmm. and so many elements. What's the next thing for you? Heading back to Baltimore tomorrow. Yeah. And the Empathy Project there opens up next week, and it will open with uh, it's a soft opening because the gallery is activated. There's something happening in the gallery every day. We have a room set aside for guided meditation. We have the table. We're going to have tea and empathy where people gather for tea and talk about empathy. We have a performance space 
at the bottom gallery, there's two levels to this gallery space. It's really beautiful. It's, it's in the Grad Student Center at MICA. There'll be performances down there. There'll be places where people can write things down and post on the wall. It's very interactive. It's about engagement and being inclusive in the process. It's not just about collecting artwork, putting it on the wall, and people coming in and looking. And most of the activity is going to take place within the gallery. It's about being there and engaging in the gallery. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it's um, the students are getting a lot out of it. I mean, to do this in an, in an academic atmosphere seems really perfect for you. The, the outpouring of response has been overwhelming. And I, I'm, I mean, I expected it because people want to talk about what we did in, at your place, at the project room last in October. Mm -hmm. I mean, people wanted, we could have talked forever. We could have talked for a lot longer. People really want to talk about this. Because when, at what point are we taught about empathy? What, what, what time, at what point in school do we engage with this conversation? Whether it be, you know, undergraduate, high school, middle school, we learned about sympathy, you know, feeling sorry for someone a little bit, but we touch on that, but empathy, we really don't talk mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And are you happy with where you are right now? I, I love where I am right now. I'm in, a, I'm in a great place, but I can't forget, one, how I got here, then that my circumstances have been different, and I've been very fortunate and at, at how certain things come at certain points when I've been ready for them. Well, I, I've really um, been inspired watching the development of your work over, I don't know, when did we meet? Mm. Six years ago, maybe? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's, you know, there's been a shift, I yeah. think, from making work that gives people something to think about to making work that inspires people to act. Mm -hmm. And that's a distinction that I see in your work taking place. And so I want to congratulate you because I think that's a big leap to Thank make you. for any artist, and mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just really inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. This has been fun.